Number nine, managing for the master. First quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Welcome to Pineal, everyone. Lesson nine of managing for the master till he comes. Daniel Duda will lead us in our discussion. Our introductory prayer by Livius Chevalier. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that you've created this space for us to come together to get to know you better, to learn something new about you. Be with our moderator, Daniel, and be with each one here as we discuss this hidden topic of covetousness. Give us your Holy Spirit to help us to see something we haven't seen before, to enlighten our minds so that we might bring glory and honor to you. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Olivius. So, lesson number nine, if you look into your study notes, under number one, it has the purpose of the lesson. Covetousness is right up there with extortion, idolatry, fornication, and adultery. That's what the text in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10 says. And this week, we will look at the examples of just how bad it is and what we can do to overcome it. And covetousness has been defined as an inordinate desire for wealth or possessions that really don't belong to you. Interestingly enough, Exodus says in chapter 3, verse 9, I have heard the cry, I have seen the misery, and I am going to do something about it. And so God brings rescue and redemption from slavery and any kind of oppression in the salvation act of the Old Testament, the Exodus. And then six weeks later, he tells Moses, tell my people, Israel, prepare to meet your God. I want to meet with you. So the symbol of Egypt is a pyramid, and at the top of a pyramid, Pharaoh sits, and you have to listen to him because he is the son of God Ra, that's what he claims to be. And the harder the Israelites work at the bottom of the pyramid, the slaves, the richer the Pharaoh gets. And the text says about the storage cities that they built for him. And God brings an end to this and makes sure that Moses is not another Pharaoh sitting at the top of the pyramid saying, you guys have to listen to me because God speaks to me. So six weeks later, God speaks to everybody. And that's the reversal of the exile from the Garden of Eden. It's not that God doesn't want to meet with you. He doesn't want to talk to you. And he speaks to them. And let's go to Exodus 20, verse 17. And what does he say to them? And by the way, commandment number 10 You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay. This week at work, I met someone at 6 p.m. And he said to me, and by the way, you can take the rest of the day off. And okay, that was funny. God says, and by the way, you can have the Sabbath off. I'm not a pharaoh. Your identity is not going to be defined in terms of quota of your work or your past. He says to them, worship God with whom you made an experience. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So God did not send Moses with the Ten Commandments, with two tables of stone and said, guys, I want you to do this. I will come back in six months time and see how you do. And we will grade you on the curve. And if majority of you get 70%, then I might lead you out of slavery. No, he takes them out of slavery. And then six weeks later, let me tell you how to be happy. And the first place is God. First four commandments deal with God. Then come the relationships, commandments five to nine. And then come the things, commandment number 10. Now, if you want to be happy, you need to put good first, then you need to put the relationships, and remember, things come last. Uh, What do you and I see in the world in which we live? People chase after the things in order to be happy, so there is no time for relationships. And of course, God is the last because there is no time left for him either. And here God says, you can't be happy this way. You need to order your priorities right. And it comes to the core narrative that God saves this for the final statement. And by the way, no coveting. Can you tell me why this is significant in the context of Exodus? And by the way, why you think about it in the GC session in Utrecht in 1995, when there was a discussion about ordination of women, 
And some people argued passionately that we cannot have women as pastors because the Bible clearly says that the bishop must be a husband of one wife. Robert Johnson from the seminary came to the microphone and said, if this is the way you want to interpret the Bible, then it means that you women have the permission to go after any male in this congregation. And in those days, you had about 2,500 delegates. Most of them were male, of course. So you have a permission to go after all of them, whether they are married or not, because the commandment says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It says nothing about the neighbor's husband, so you can freely covet any husband you want. So if plain reading is the way to go, then you might arrive at some interesting conclusions. But the question is, why God says this in the context of Exodus? And why is this that it's going to determine or define the core narrative of Israel? Bob? Well, a minor thought is if you aren't supposed to covet someone else's property and you are a slave and you covet freedom, are you not coveting someone else's property? This is if you're an Israelite in Egypt. So it seems like you have to look very carefully at the nuances because God said, no, I'm going to free all of these slaves. So, and you certainly have the comments in the New Testament. So it seems like, I think of that verse, the truth shall set you free, but it seems like God has a long range goal of working toward freedom, but he does work within the cultures that existed at the time. But like with Israel, he basically took all the Egyptians property away in terms of the slave category of the Israelites. Yeah. Okay. So he deals with the property. Larry? The people who left, there's a comment or a statement that there was also a mixed multitude that went with them. And my recollection is that there was some non-Israelite people that left and went with them. So first of all, if that's true, does that then change any of the things? And how do you then interpret that? Because those people clearly wouldn't have been slaves that went with them. So I need a bit of an answer to that before I can go on any further. Yeah, so not all in the crowd, in the multitude, have been slaves. So Moses wasn't a slave, obviously. And yeah, we don't know the composition of the mixed multitude, but of course, you can assume that they march with Mm -hmm. them because your God is stronger than our God, and they went to be on the winning side. So part of the whole dilemma, and I think those of us that watch the collapse of the Soviet Union, which existed only for 70 years, uh, approximately by its collapse, understand what happens when people are given freedom who've never had an opportunity to make some decisions. So maybe part of this whole story and leading up to this already At the Red Sea, I'm not sure how many days they've been on the road, but I'm going to guess that it's probably less than a week, maybe 10 days, and they already are angry with Moses and saying, hey, wasn't it enough? Let us alone. Let us die in Egypt instead of bringing us out here. So there are multiple occasions getting to the mountain. They've demonstrated a inability to process and come to rational adult-type conclusions. Which is not surprising given their past history. And God is going to teach them and show them, I care about you and I'm on your side. Lou? I was thinking about the terms of covet versus desire versus admire. Those are all kind of closely related. And I think covet is probably the negative version of those things. But we see people that have developed their talents and you can really admire them and appreciate them. And sometimes, you know, even like with heaven, we desire heaven. We desire our relationship with our loving heavenly father, but we don't covet it. So they're all kind of closely related. But of course, covet is the negative side of it when you want something somebody else has. But sometimes you see somebody that is very upbeat and very positive person. And I think people sometimes admire and desire to be like that type of a person. So I don't know that that's coveting or not. Yeah. And that's why we provided some definitions of coveting. So not everything that goes by coveting or lust is truly coveting and lust. On the other hand, 
if you ignore it, you get yourself into serious trouble. Livius? Well, in the context of the Exodus, they were children. They had no freedoms, no right to own property. They didn't have anything to manage, per se, nothing of their own. And they're about to embark into a quote-unquote promised land where they're going to be given land and property. And so I wonder if this is like a hedge of protection for them because they're going to be coming into power per se, their freedom is going to increase, they'll be able to make decisions. So there's a practical aspect to, I think, maybe this. But I'm also thinking of a spiritual aspect, and the spiritual aspect is that this kind of leads to a worship issue where you may worship, you may covet slash worship someone. Okay, let's go to Bob. I'm looking at this quote there in number two about covetousness being defined as an inordinate desire for wealth or possessions that really don't belong to you. It seems to me that coveting is, I want what you have, not something like what you have, but I want your stuff. I want your wife, not just a wife. I mean, it's good to have a wife, but it's probably not good for me to have your wife. That would be bad for everybody involved. And I think Patriarchs and Prophets sheds a little bit of light on this in the chapter on the flood, where it talks about after the fall, men chose to follow their own sinful desires. And as a result, crime and wretchedness rapidly increased. Neither the marriage relation nor the rights of property were respected. And that just doesn't lead to any kind of community ad- adhesion when everybody is at everybody else's throats. Yeah, and basically, it's an expression of the attitude, in order to be happy, I need this. Well, it's one thing to want some of these things. It's one of the things that makes you go to work and earn some money. But it's another thing to want not just what the kind of things that you have, but I want the things you have, which would then necessarily deprive you of those things. Okay, let's go to Michael Bell. Well, in that society, a wife was not considered as your equal. A wife was property. And if yep. you wanted to marry a woman, you didn't go ask her, would you marry me? You went and talked to her father. And then he said, sure, you can have her as your wife. You maybe and you I- need a sum of money and you got married. That's how it was done. And agreed on the price with the father. Right. You didn't pay her, you paid the father. And you out and you lived happily ever after. Of course, the romantic expectations are not very high in that environment. Henry? Aligned with what Bob Kearney was mentioning, I think that the tenth is a protection for you to break the prior commandments because if in order to get your wife, to get to get your property, I may need to kill you. I may need to do something to you in order to get it, right? So sounds like a protection to do not fall on the prior commandments. But on the other hand, you were asking in the context of the Exodus, Henry, and before you go there, can you connect what you just said with the Genesis 12, the call of Abraham? That's an interesting thought. If you want the wife, if you want the things, if you want the house of the other guy, now he's not going to be yeah. excited about that. He's not going to be agreeable. So you need to do something, either kill him or steal it, etc., and connect it with the call of Abraham through you, all the generations, all the tribes are going to be blessed. Absolutely. That is a very profound thought because then you cannot be a blessing for the rest of the peoples. That's your call to touch others in benefit and not abusing them. Because Sinai does not uh, occur in a vacuum. It's a continuation of the story of Abraham. Absolutely great connection there, Daniel. Also, on this context of the Exodus, these people does not have anything. And it's being called to live whatever they think they have in their slavery, because they had a place to go to sleep at night. It was not theirs, but it was provided or could be taken at any time, but they thought it was theirs. And when you are asking them to leave that, that requires a complete trust in God because now you are going into the wilderness. And I was checking on the commentary on the Jewish Bible, and it says that the verb for this is not just don't covet, but don't scheme on trying to get somebody else's things. So don't even plan on doing it. So they are going into the wilderness, and this requires total trust in God, because you're invited to go out without anything and not even planning on having anything with you or taking anything from anybody and moving into a new place. And that requires complete confidence. One caveat here that is important to consider, they were offered to be given the land of others. 
their possessions. And so that's something to consider as well, right? To make that equilibrium there. How is that? I'm not asking you not to covet anything else, but I will give you what is of somebody else later on. Yeah, because the earth belongs to the Lord, and so the other nations are just occupying there. And of course, given the geography that we know today, if they decide to run away and possess other lands nearby or elsewhere, they are free to do so. If they pull the sword and start fighting, then they need to count on the fact that they might be killed in the process. We need to remember that the plan that God initially had was not for them to fight and take the things from them. The plan was for the people to leave the land, for them to possess it without scheming planning on how they were going to do it. So the commandment applies very well in that aspect as well. Yeah. So the ways that Israel is different from the surrounding nations in the Mediterranean are two. First, one is that they are monotheistic. So in other nations, everything is God. You have good gods, bad gods, but everything is scary and you need to please those gods. And they are monotheistic and you don't need to be unsure or fearful where I do stand with that God. Have I done enough to please him? Because he's not capricious. They worship one God and it's a good God. And that's why you have a future. And the other one was put the practice of putting a voluntary limit on their wealth. Because God is going to ask them to live in deliberate generosity. You cannot get disproportionately wealthy in that society. Legally, of course, by the time you come to Ahab, <laughs> you will see how it happens. And Samuel already predicts, and even uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 17, this idea to have a king, it's not a good idea because nothing is going to be good enough for the king. He will take the best boys to fight in his army, the best girls into his harem, and the best vineyards. Remember, Ahab, if he wants something He's going to get it because he's the king. And we are back to the pyramid again, which God so carefully chops the top of it away and says, let's make sure that in this community, if you are supposed to be the blessing to all the tribes, you are an answer to the systemic evil of the Egyptian worldview of the Egyptian society. Larry? One of the problems is I see it with the idea of covetousness of a person being covetous. And I'm going to use a phrase that J.B. Phillips used in the title of his book, Your God is Too Small. And you view everything as being a fixed system. In other words, there's only two fishes and seven loaves. How are we going to feed all these people? And if you don't understand the concept that God can meet all of those conditions that he's confronted with, then you're forced to conclude that the only way that I can be sure that I have enough to eat is to make sure that I get my fair share out of the grocery store because there may not be any more arriving tomorrow. And this whole concept that we then have in society, which is based upon trust of, I trust you to go to work tomorrow to deliver and drive and bring more groceries to the store so that there will be, and we all do our part in that. And so when you begin to have covetousness, that whole trust of society breaks down because of the fear that it introduces. It's an interesting concept. Sure. And we will deal with this on Tuesday when we talk about what contribution did Jesus bring. So under number six, we will go into that. That's why we didn't cover the memory text yet, because you don't start with Jesus. You start where you need to start. Bobby Joe nicely said in the chat about Adam and Eve, we could start there, of course. But the commandment about covetousness starts with Exodus. And so that's why it's important to frame it in the Exodus salvation story. I am providing salvation from slavery, and that's why, remember, this is going to be the determining aspect of your core narrative. Bobby Joe, can you say about Adam and Adam and Eve that you said in the chat? 
I was just wanting to ask whether or not we could say that Adam and Eve coveted the fruit that was hanging on the forbidden tree. And if that started all our problems, because God had said, you can enjoy any tree of this entire garden, but just one tree is off limits and its fruits are not to be touched. And when they chose to disobey that and take the fruit, the result of that was the first death, which was death to a lamb and consequentially to the entire human race. So covetousness could have begun right there as one of the first choices that they made. And it's part of that first temptation where the serpent tries to convince them God is not on your side. He's not a friend as he pretends to be, because if something is off limits, then if he was truly your friend, then nothing would be off limits. And God says, no, actually, when you are eating from this tree, you are not eating because you are hungry, because you have all other trees. When you are eating from this tree, you are sending them the message. And the message is you are not the first and foremost in our lives anymore. And so, yes, that's part of Genesis 3. The woman saw that the tree can make you wise. You can't see that. This is the result of the discussion with the serpent that she agrees with his perspective, that God is not on their side. And then you see it as limitation, as arbitrary limitation, rather than the protection. Bob Ziprick. Following up on Bobby Joe's comment, what was being coveted was not necessarily the fruit, but what the fruit would bring, which is knowledge equal to God. And then if you go back to other parts of the Bible, you say, well, what Lucifer coveted was to be like the Most High himself or to essentially, I mean, ultimate power, because power is obviously something a lot of beings covet, not just in this world, but in the universe. So the fruit was, if I understand the representation of Lucifer, this will make you have knowledge like God. It's something God's holding back from you. Is that a fair? Sure. And that's where we are going after Jay into Isaiah 14. What is the original sin? Jay Brand? I really appreciated your opening monologue. You didn't really spend that much time, so maybe I shouldn't call it a monologue, but I thought it was a fantastic sort of a positive summation of the process of the Exodus and the four or five, six weeks up to Mount Sinai when he codified his law. It was a process of changing their identity from slaves to free people. And then he told them, you can rest on the Sabbath and you're not slaves anymore. And by the way, the key to true happiness is first reconciliation with God, reestablish and heal that relationship and then restore your relationships with other people. And finally, indicating that they were the least significant for the key ingredients for happiness, don't covet things, avoid materialism. And that's still a beautiful antidote for our society today, just like you pointed out. I just wanted to reiterate that. I thought that was brilliant. And I also, it points out, I realize this is trivializing what you said, but you were spinning the Ten Commandments in a positive way, even though most of them, with two exceptions, say, don't do this, don't do that. But you spun them in a positive way. And I would spin the tree of knowledge of good and evil in a positive way, as Añol Rodriguez and others uh, have pointed out, beginning with origin way back when. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was a guarantee of freedom. So yes, it represented an important prohibition that ultimately inspired distrust of God and acceptance of the deceptions of the serpent, like you said. But in essence, in a functional sense, it was the only thing in the garden that guaranteed that they had a choice beyond what God had already imposed on them. Yeah, just regarding the commandments, they are not prohibitions. In Hebrew, they are future tense, okay? So if you have God in your heart, if you worship the one with whom you had the experience, who brought you out of slavery, with whom you had the positive experience, then you will not need these things. You will not do these things. They are future tense in Hebrew. Let me say this before we move on to Isaiah 14. Notice the prohibition concerns acquiring something that belongs to another human being, to your neighbor. So it's not the attitude of wanting. As Larry pointed out, if you don't want anything, you don't get out of bed in the morning. But it's wanting plus taking that makes it bad. And Henry also pointed out that you need to steal it, you need to kill the neighbor, etc. So it's this combination of wanting or desiring and seizing. Remember this, because after Lucifer, we come to Achan. And he says, I saw, I took. No. So this seizing, this acquiring produces this system 
where addiction comes in and skews everything out of proportion. You don't see the neighbor as one that you are supposed to bless. You see as the one to deprive because they have something that I need to make me happy. And God says, with this thinking, you are never going to be happy. You are always going to be slaves of possessions. And I don't want that to happen to you because this desire cannot be satisfied. Remember the ancient joke, who is happier, the one who has $1 million or the one who has 11 children? And the answer is the one who has 11 children because he doesn't want any more. All right, let's go to Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Okay, five times I. And of course, let's read Genesis 3, 6. That was already indicated by Bobby Joe. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Mm -hmm. So the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. Can you see that? Yes, of course, there are some foods which we are not going to mention that don't look very desirable, but generally a rotten pear doesn't look desirable, but a beautiful mango looks desirable, good for food. Good. Pleasing to the eye. Yeah, can you see that? The aesthetical aspect? Yeah, definitely. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. Can you see that? No, that's where the fallacy is. You can see the first two, but you can't see the third. And this is where she agrees, and the result is, and once she agrees with the processing of the servant, God is not your friend, God is not on your side, I am surprised Eve, that you consider God your friend, because he limits you, something is off the limit, so he is not your friend. She took, ate, and gave. Remember the quotation from Desire of Ages, we are all born into the kingdom as missionaries? She took, ate, and became a missionary, and shared. And what did Adam do? He took and ate. And the eyes of both were opened. So what is the original sin, both for Lucifer and the downfall of Adam and Eve? Any comments on the original sin, on Lucifer or Eve? Jay? I love Tomstead's idea about the original sin, that we often think about the two or three prominent lies that the serpent told Eve, you won't die and you can be like God. But I agree with Tomstead that the first lie and perhaps the most important one was implied in the serpent's opening question. You already summarized that, Daniel, that they accepted the serpent's implied lie that God is limiting, God is restrictive. God's economy is not one of generosity and self-giving. It's one of withholding pleasures and happiness and fulfillment. And so God is denying you something in the fruit that would ultimately be very beneficial to you. And I believe that that is the root of covetousness. In other words, if the serpent can get us to believe that there's something that we've been denied, committing adultery, or that third piece of pie with ice cream, I have no idea what someone's particular covetousness might involve. But if the root of that problem is that God is restrictive, the Gospel of John is an expanded attempt with its zenith at the cross to show a God who gives, and he gives generously. 12 baskets of fruit left over, 180 gallons of wine for the wedding. The, the disciples saw the glory of God in Christ on that occasion, the wedding of Cana. So this overly generous God, a prodigal God who gives and gives and finally pours out his own life. This refutes this fundamental lie from the serpent, which I think is the root of yes. the original sin, is that God is not generous. He's not giving. He's restrictive. He's denying you something that would be wonderful. And we are not there yet. Save that comment when I'm going to ask in a few seconds. So what was it that Jesus brought? And he even tells the parable of the, remember, Matthew 13, what is the parable called in the Bible? It's not the parable about the good and bad soil. It's a parable about the sower. Just you and I, when we read that, we start worrying what kind of soil I am. Am I producing good enough harvest? 
is God happy with me because your father or your mother or your teachers were never happy enough with you. So we immediately go into the warring mode. But the parable is about the sower who throws the seed to the birds. He feeds the birds who throws it even on the pathway where you feel, why are you wasting your seed? No, because this is who God is. He throws it everywhere. And it will be about generous God and the contribution that Jesus is going to make. But we are not there yet in the Bible story. Michael, one of the criticisms I've often heard about the story of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit is, why am I being punished for something that happened eons ago and over which I had no control? And I think the response is something fundamentally changed in their very nature. And Therefore, they could not pass it on to their offspring and ultimately to me. And it was a fundamental defect in the very nature of who they were, which occurred as a result of their disobedience to God. Okay, Henry? Thank you. Just want to point out that it is interesting that that rebelliousness, that distrust or lack of trust to God, because all of that uh, Jay was mentioning, leads Lucifer to believe, and this is the insanity that sin creates, to the insanity to think that if he only has the powers that God has of knowing everything, he can sit in the throne and be like him, not understanding that it's not the knowledge, it's not the wisdom what makes God who he is, but is his character. And we continue to preach the same thing, trying to go to heaven because we are going to be smarter, because we are going to know a lot. And that is not the reality. And we can continue to twist in the wrong direction that is not obtaining powers, but reflecting the character. Good. Thank you. Which brings us back to the Ten Commandments. Number 10 says, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. For the first time, neighbor is introduced three times. So, Jay, if you said that, let's put it positively. Fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath. Remember that God is not a celestial counterpart of Pharaoh. I don't evaluate you on your production. You even can get a day off. I don't value you on your performance. But the last one, on the second table, remember the neighbor. Remember the neighbor. It's not only you on this planet. There is also a neighbor. And if you see everything through the prism, I need to have this. Back to the question that Bobby Joe is asking in the chat. How do we produce a new generation of people in the consumer society where everybody is based on covetousness? I need to have this to make me happy. No, remember the neighbor. Remember the neighbor. If you don't remember the neighbor, you can't be a blessing to them. You can't be people I want you to be. So this is going to be the core narrative of Israel. The neighbor's line must not be transgressed. The neighbor will always be there. They will not go away. All right. We could say more about the Exodus. Remember how you treat your neighbor? Because if you take the cloak of your poor guy and he cries to me, Exodus 22, then I won't be on your side. I will hear the cry. You liked it when I heard your cry. Make sure that nobody cries on account of you. Remember the neighbor. Remember the widow. Remember the orphan. And so he puts limits on covetousness and says, guys, if you don't get rid of this, you are never going to achieve happiness. Lou? It seems to me that it all really boils down to the picture that we have of God. If we see God as a restrictive God, then we will function from that platform will be selfish will be all the things because it could seem like well that's the way god is and that is not the big picture that is not the beautiful picture of the character of our loving god and so it depends on our view of god i think as to how we see all these things as to whether they're restrictive or whether they are a blessing mm -hmm. and by the way when the israelites leave egypt what do they take with them no comment no criticism on taking the gold and the things from Egyptians because they have been mistreated as slaves. So no comment, no ethical <laughs> moralizing on that one. All right, there is much more we could say about the Pentateuch, especially what we mentioned, how God teaches them not to store up. What are they going to do after these years of slavery? The first thing they start is hoarding. So 
Here comes the lesson with mana. No storing up. Guys, it will spoil. If you start hoarding, no coveting. <laughs> Remember the neighbor. You have enough to eat. Make sure that the neighbor can collect enough to eat, etc., etc. So there's a lot we could say, but let's go to Joshua 7. And let's pick up the story from there. We can only cover a little bit from the Bible story. So Joshua 7. But the Israelites broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the Israelites. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. Then they returned to Joshua and said to him, Not all the people need to go up. About two or three thousand men should go up and attack I. Since they are so few, do not make the whole people toil up there. So about three thousand of the people went up there, and they fled before the men of I. The men of I killed about thirty-six of them, chasing them from outside the gate as far as Shebarim, and killing them on the slope. The hearts of the people failed and turned to water. Okay, let's skip to ten. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. Why have you fallen upon your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I imposed on them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have acted deceitfully. And they have put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the Israelites are unable to stand before their enemies. They turn their backs to their enemies because they have become a thing devoted for destruction themselves. Okay. You see, they are not the blessing anymore. Okay, verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites family by family, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household one by one, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, It is true. I am the one who sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. They now lie hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Okay, so that's the story. And please, Joshua 5, verse 12. Because if you don't read Joshua 5, verse 12, you are not going to understand the context for Joshua 7. Remember, what was the lesson with manna? No hoarding. I'm taking care of you 40 years, 50 weeks. So there you have it, over 2,000 times the miracle. God provides. He takes care of you. You don't need to hoard. Joshua 5.12. The manna ceased on the day they ate the produce of the land, and the Israelites no longer had manna. They ate the crops of the land of Canaan that year. Okay, so they entered the promised land. The result of that is that the social conditions are changing. God is not going to provide miraculously the manna and the miracles that go with it. So it doesn't spoil from Friday to Sabbath. Every other day it spoils. Everybody gathers as much as they want it. Now, so you can't get rich on that one because you only gather as much as you needed. Now they enter into a different agricultural system. What will be the greatest temptation? Hoarding and coveting. So there goes the story of Achan. What do you make of that? And by the way, let's read also verse 24. How poor was Achan? Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, with the silver, the mantle, and the bar of gold. These are the things that he stole, that he was hoarding from the enemies. With his sons and daughters, with his oxen, donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Oh, so he's a well-to-do man. He has no need to hoard, to steal. He doesn't do this because he has nothing to feed his children. So what's the problem? What's the lesson, Henry? It is very interesting that for 40 years, God has been training these people to 
learn to rely on him, to trust in him on a daily basis. And now comes the final exam. You are going to go there and the miracles are not going to be the same. But the one that is with you continues to be the same. The one that has promised you to live in a land that flows milk and honey, cholesterol and sugar is there. The promise continues to be the same. And then Achan thinks that he needs to prepare just in case because everybody's getting the same portion. But he's trying to take advantage saying, I need to make some savings just in case. So I think that's the problem that we are seeing in him, the lack of trust. Even after 40 years of complete reliance on God, he cannot look forward in a trustworthy God. And notice how he comments, I saw, I coveted, and I took. Have you heard that before in the preceding story? I saw, I wanted that, and so I took it. That's Adam and Eve. That's the sons of man. They saw the girls, they wanted them, and they took them. It's the same story repeated again and again. And the result is a disaster for him, for his family, for the whole nation. This way, guys, you are not going to be a blessing. However, if you look at Hosea 2.5, the valley of trouble becomes the door of hope. God can deal with this. So let's learn. How does God deal with it? So we are going to skip over all prophetic from all historical books. We have only Joshua. And there is much more we could learn, but no time for that. So tell me, what is it that Jesus brings? How Jesus brings this forward, the storyline regarding the money and the possession. So let's go to Luke 12, our memory text. Now you are ready for the memory text. Terry, let's start from verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Mm -hmm. And that's the memory text. And then he tells them a parable about the rich fool. The lives of people are based on anxiety. If I had this, I would be happier. Teacher, tell my brother. This is not fair. Have you heard that before? I don't like it. It's not fair. And Jesus says, that's not my business. That's not why I am here. So what is it that Jesus brings? You have already indicated that. Let's read the story, John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Uh-huh. So remember, what is the thinking that he uses? So Judas says, if we waste this on Jesus, if we put money into this, it will not be available for that. That is for the poor. And of course, John tells you, and it was not because he cared about the poor, because if he cared, he had enough opportunities to show how much he cared, but he didn't even care about the fellow disciples because he was stealing from the bag and betraying their trust. And he's about to betray the trust of Jesus and to kiss him, yet Jesus still calls him a friend. So you have this zero-sum notion about money. There is only limited supply that Larry mentioned, and if you get it, that means I don't get it. And what is it that Jesus brings into this economy? Notice Jesus does not operate from the principle of scarcity. He operates from the principle of abundance. Sherry? Sometimes I think we can't talk about some of the concepts too rigidly without thinking through some situations. For instance, the hoarding. We've just been through situations in the world where sometimes some items are very hard to come by. And it has been actually wisdom to store up some of those things that you know might not be there next month. And 
I'm thinking of even in the Bible when Joseph was in charge, one of the things he so wisely did was start gathering the food because he knew a famine was coming. I think that we have to always take into consideration the why something is being done. And it can turn out to be wisdom to be a blessing to many. Yeah. So once again, if you applied rigidly that you have two cans at home that you're already hoarding, that's not what the story is all about. It's about, I need this for my survival. I need this for my happiness, etc. So yeah, of course. Thank you. Lou? You asked the question, what did Jesus bring in those circumstances? And to me, I love the song. It says, Lord, lift me up and help me stand by faith on heaven's table land. Because we live in an atmosphere down here where there's a lot of smog, in a sense, a lot of selfishness, a lot of greed, a lot of evil, self-centeredness, and we can get caught up in it. But if we secure our vision that Jesus came to show us of the beautiful picture of God, and we ask him to help us stand on higher ground above the smog and the fog, he will. And I think that's what Jesus came to show us is who God is and that beautiful picture. So it takes self clear out of the picture and the selfishness that we have down here in this smoggy old world is just to be lifted up and see the beautiful picture of our loving God. Yes, but what is it that Jesus shows? Lou, why that negative picture of the world? I know people who took a wow that for the rest of their lives are going to give away 30% of their income. And they are mm-hmm. atheists. Mm-hmm. To me, that's not the smoggy world. That to me is the work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah. absolutely. What is it that Jesus brings? What is the positive attitude? How Jesus takes the Old Testament narrative to a different level? Yeah. Jesus, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, they had a little committee meeting in heaven before creation ever happened. And they set a plan in motion. And Jesus came as a baby. He lived and he died, but he rose again so that the Holy Spirit could come and fill the hearts and minds of people and change lives from selfishness into the character of the loving God. So does that explain it, Daniel? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see the positive contribution that Jesus makes. That he says, life does not consist of, as our memory text says, of abundance of the things that one possesses. And there's a joy way beyond things. That's the thing. I mean, you look at the martyrs and the disciples that were in prison, the people that were singing as they were being burned at the stake. Those things, we cannot explain that from a human standpoint. It's only by God's grace and indwelling of the Holy Spirit that anybody can be like that. Yeah. So the words of Jesus, your heavenly father knows what you need. That's right. So see him see him as a provider yes operate from the principle of abundance not from the principle of scarcity and jay gave you already some examples of gathering seven or 12 baskets Mm -hmm. etc that god Mm -hmm. operates from the principle of abundance thank you henry i think that is a revelation of how god's economy how God's kingdom work. Because from the perspective of covetousness, when there is a desire to take from somebody else to benefit myself, to hoard because it benefits me, and I am willing to take from others to do that, God is showing through Jesus and throughout the whole Bible story up to this point that the one that has it all is not looking for more, but has it all and is willing to give it, to give it to the last drop and that's even willing to give his life not to benefit him because that didn't make him more God at what he is, but made us beneficiaries of that love. And how important, how religion twists this traditional religion, where we talk about the soil a parable or the prodigal son parable, instead of looking that the sower, the prodigal sower, or the prodigal father, and that we look into a different perspective. So I think that's what Jesus made, that revelation. The one that has it all is not looking for more billions, is actually willing to give it all for the benefit of the rest, and even the ones that didn't like him. Okay, excellent. And let's now go to Acts 5, another contribution, another movement in the story. 
But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead. So they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Yes, and we are going to ask about that one, why the great fear seized the whole church. But once again, this is the example where Stephen Langton and his horse ride didn't help us much with the division of the chapters. So let's read 436. You need the context. 436 as an introduction to the Ananias and Sapphira story. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay. There was a name named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. He sold a piece of property and he brought the rest of money and put them at apostles' feet. What's going on in the book of Acts? And remember, contribution of Jesus that we didn't mention, he said, you will always have poor with you, which is, by the way, a quotation from Deuteronomy. This side of eternity, you can't have a totally fair society. And we discussed that in the special series when we talked about the equality of opportunity and the equality of outcome. So you can't have a totally equal outcome. And... If you look under number seven in Acts, you have this clash between the imperial authority. What is the empire all about? It's about extortion economy and the work of the Holy Spirit. And what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is the impact on the community? In the words of Eugene Peterson, and people liked what they saw. Why? Because there was never a community like this before where all people are taken care of. Now, they have their cultural diversity, and some people complain that they are forgotten, they are not treated the same, they address the issue. But what's going on here? Because of the principle of abundance that Jesus brought when he rose from the dead, a community of irrational joy and irrepressible generosity was created. The privilege of stewardship took precedence over the right of ownership. And people are going to say, you know, let me help. I want to help. Can you imagine what happened when the son of encouragement died? Because one day Barnabas died and many people came to the funeral. And because they didn't have a PA system, some people are in the back and they can't see and they can't hear well. And so they're asking the one standing in front of them, can you tell me what's going on down there in the center? And the word comes back. Now a little widow came forward and she's speaking. Oh, so not the first pope? No, a widow. And she says, you know, my husband died and I thought that I will be sold to slavery or to prostitution. But this man who now is in the casket, he sold his field and I was helped. And that's why I am here today. Because there was a community that was taking care of the neighbor. That was different than the empire. Because the empire was based on Pax Romana. And what was Pax Romana? You pay taxes so that we can pay our soldiers to keep the artificial peace. All right, time to close. What's the solution for the covetousness? And by the way, if you are tempted to say you need to give more, 
let me remind you under number nine that the Jews in Jesus' day put 23.33% of their income into the right storehouse, and yet Jesus showed that their religion did not bring them closer to God and did not make it attractive to the outsiders. So the solution is not to give more. Okay, let's go to Karen. Yes, I'm thinking that contentment is like the opposite of covetousness when what I have is enough and I have it with joy and peace and gratitude and I know that God is generous and I have more than enough and I can share freely because God will just continue to bless in the amazing way that he does. Then it's that contentment that actually is a protection against covetousness. What I have is enough, it's more than enough, it's a gift from God and it's plenty and then I don't need anything from anybody else. And I might need, and then it's okay. If I need something, let's share, let's talk about it, because what you have can help me and I can help you because we are in a community of mutual help. Yes, yes. thank you very much, Karen. There is a researcher at Stanford University, Leon Festinger, who did a research in the social comparison theory. And he discovered that in different situations, we tend to compare ourselves with either people above us or below us. And so he discovered that on morality, we compare ourselves with people who we consider below us. So you look at mass murderers, you look at drug dealers, and you say, actually, I am not that bad. Actually, I am better than them. But when it comes to money and giving and possessions, we compare ourselves to people above us those who have more than we do. And you know what he discovered? That if you compare with people above us who have more than we do, that it kills compassion. It generates increased amounts of greed and decreasing amounts of compassion. You don't see the needs of others, you only see what you don't have. And back to what Karen said, it's a matter of interpretation. How do I see that God provides for my needs and I can be a blessing to someone else. Because remember, this is the story of Abraham. All the tribes are thinking, in order for our tribe to survive, we can kill, we can steal, we can do whatever. Because as long as our tribe survives, as long as our genes are passed on, that's the most important thing. And God says, no, 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 I will have a community who is thinking, how can I be a blessing to someone else? Through you, all the tribes of the world are going to be blessed. Lou? I think that true contentment really only comes by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because apart from that, I'm selfish. I can want to be content, and I can strive to be content and not have any covetousness or any of those things, but I'm a human being. And apart from God and the indwelling Christ in me through the Holy Spirit, I can't do it. There's no way that I cannot be covetous or selfish apart from that indwelling and that yielding of myself to God every day. And I don't even know always what's inside of me. And sometimes God allows circumstances to come that sometimes can even horrify me about myself to show me where I still need to depend fully upon him and grow in his grace. Yep. Thank you. Contentment comes from the spirit of gratitude, says Karen in the chat. And let me add, which is opposite of the spirit of entitlement. So if I see how God is fulfilling my needs, then I can rejoice about what you have. I don't need to envy you. If my need for significance, security, and self-worth is met elsewhere, then I don't need to have it met in things that I need to own and possess. And so this is how God provides by working on our heart, and Bobby Joe mentioned that in the chat, that covetousness is a heart problem. Sherry? I think that this kind of attitude is a journey, just like growing up is a journey. And I think knowing that makes us more sympathetic with people who may be very annoying to us because there's so much in the opposite direction. But we all come with different natures, different gifts, and different experiences and pasts. And our journeys all differ. So I think just understanding that this is a journey helps us to be a lot more sympathetic with others that may be behaving in ways that are hard for us to be around. Sure. Are we there yet? Of course not. Has God finished working on us? No. But there is a biblical principle that the strong 
are there to help the weak. And through you, all the families, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. And we are part of that community. And we just need to see how on this journey, God can use me today, tomorrow, to be a blessing to someone else in whatever way. Yeah, we bless each other in different ways. Yeah, Henry, last word and we will pray. I wonder if contentment is the goal because that seems to me like looking towards me when I am feeling that I am okay with what I have. Could it be, am I stretching too much if I say that it's maybe probably empathy? But instead of looking towards me inwards, I'm looking outwards and seeing what is the need? What can I do for others? And not be worried that I may be given all that I have and not being content anymore because now I don't feel safe, but I am living for the blessing, to be a blessing for others. Sure. So we need to ask, what is the underlying issue? What is going on here? What is it that sin did with self-centeredness to each one of us? And what is it that Jesus is calling us, as Sherry mentioned, on this journey of realizing your heavenly Father provides? He takes care of you. Wasn't that what he was trying to teach the Israelites from the very first week when the sea in front of them, the mountain besides them and the soldiers behind them? Don't worry, I will provide. They have nothing to drink. Don't worry, I will provide. They have nothing to eat. Don't worry, I am providing. And then manna for 40 years, then the promised land and constantly trying to teach them. There's no need to worry. I am providing. All right, let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we are amazed how you deal with this world and our underlying issue of covetousness. You know how much it's in the heart of each one of us. And you saw that at times certain measures are needed, but ultimately they don't bring the solution, as we can see from the story of Achan or story of Ananias and Sapphira. And so we pray that somehow our hearts would be soft and in touch with your generosity that we don't operate in the coming days and weeks from the principle of scarcity, but that we can see how much you blessed each one of us, and so that our eyes are open to how we can be a blessing to someone else. Teach us to be content with what we receive every day. Give us wisdom how to multiply the gifts and talents and resources that we have so that we can be even greater blessings to the community where you put us. And most of all, we thank you for your eternal patience, that in spite of us being such slow learners, there is space for each one of us to grow, and for us as a community as well. We pray all that in the name of Jesus. Amen.